For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Oklahoma loses in an appeal by opioid manufacturers. The state Supreme Court overturned a $465 million verdict against the drug makers. Justices say the lower court erred in saying the companies created a public nuisance against the state. Neva, what does this mean for the money Oklahoma was expected to receive in this lawsuit? Well, I think it's a question mark because uh, the new attorney general, John O'Connor, basically made the statement that he was disappointed after Tuesday's decision came down from the state Supreme Court. But uh, he didn't give any indication what uh, they would do moving forward. He said Mm -hmm. basically that uh, his staff was exploring options. Obviously, they have the opportunity to try to take it to take it to the to the uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether that happens or not, I think remains to be seen. But the the, this uh, decision five one by the justices uh, was pretty significant. And when you look at what was said, I mean, Justice Winchester wrote for the majority. And one of the things that that he said in there was that basically the district court's expansion of the public nuisance law went too far. And this was one of the things that Johnson and Johnson had maintained. The U.S. Chamber and others had maintained and argued all through this uh, uh, this process was that the state's 1910 public nuisance law was meant for property disputes and that they had gone way beyond the scope uh, with 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 this particular case. So it will be fascinating. I think there, I mean, as I think most of our listeners will remember, it was, uh, it was just two years ago that this verdict came down in a non-jury uh, trial. It was the first major lawsuit against opioid manufacturers uh, to make it to trial in the country. So this is something not only Oklahomans are paying watch on, but uh, certainly has national implications as well. Ryan. Yeah, I mean, I I think that um, even though there were a lot of legal observers who had been looking at uh, this and and thought that it was a stretch to extend public nuisance law to the manufacture and distribution of pharmaceutical drugs, um, I think most of Oklahoma's legal community yesterday was was floored uh, by a five to one decision that came out of the, the Oklahoma Supreme Court. I, I know whenever I got my text message uh, from Neva, Neva was the one that broke the news to me yesterday. Uh, when I got my text message from Neva, I was floored. I was on a conference call with other uh, lawyers on an unrelated subject and immediately brought it up. They were uh, likewise uh, shocked because it does overturn what was heralded as a monumental victory for the people of Oklahoma, for public health in Oklahoma, and for accountability to these drug manufacturers. I think that if people were disappointed in the outcome uh, of this case, they were only disappointed in the, in the sense that it wasn't a bigger verdict mm-hmm. um, and that, that, uh, that there wasn't more money, more money coming to the state of Oklahoma and that the, uh, the Sackler family in particular uh, were able to um, you know, pay the damages to the state of Oklahoma without ever really feeling any sort of financial pain uh, for the amount of death and destruction uh, that they caused in the state of Oklahoma uh, and around the nation. And that doesn't seem to be in dispute uh, in the Supreme Court's opinion here. I, I think that the, the Supreme Court didn't come to this uh, decision about the extension of public nuisance law lightly. I think that they understood that doing so would be a setback. 
but I think that, you know, ultimately uh, they had to look at, as Neva said, this, this law that has uh, in 1910, um, you know, largely grounded in uh, the enjoyment and use of property, real property, it has been extended over the years. And the court recognized that tort law is, is ever evolving in the, in the court's majority opinion. Um, and, but this new novel approach uh, did not convince them uh, that this fit, uh, fit within. You know, I, I do think that, uh, you know, Justice Edmondson, who uh, filed the only dissent in the case, said that um, he didn't agree with the district court's ruling, but he also felt that the Supreme Court uh, of Oklahoma could have remanded the case to the district court level uh, to you know, have a better sense of what damages would be and that that would remedy the, the vague nature of the application of public nuisance law for, for this kind of activity. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case right now. Uh, moving forward, I, you know, and, you know, I, I hate to, you know, uh, I'm not a betting person at all, but uh, the idea that we're going to recoup any of this money in Oklahoma right now seems like a long shot. Attorney General Mike Hunter had done this lawsuit pretty much on his own. In fact, he actually said he didn't want to join other states and, and does he want to do this on his own. But Hunter's not there anymore. So do you think that might have had some kind of reasoning for, for why this kind of fell apart at, at the last minute? I don't no, think I think so. that I don't think so. I mean, um, Hunter, uh, you, know, you know, he was he was you know, this was really. Uh, I mean, if, if, if my country were on the ballot right now running for re-election, this would have been the mantelpiece for his re-election campaign mm -hmm. for yeah. sure. I mean, um, but he had, you know, very talented outside counsel uh, with Reggie Whitten, you know, judge, uh, former judge Mike Burridge, uh, law firm of Nix Patterson. Uh, and these are, you know, some of the smartest lawyers on the planet. Uh, and so um, I don't think that Mike Hunter being out of the picture had any effect on what happened yesterday. You were saying neither? Well, I, you know, I think it's interesting. I, I think businesses kind of across the board had to uh, have a sigh of relief yesterday from from the standpoint of they were it was very clear that many of them thought that this decision really uh, almost became ground zero for Oklahoma in terms of opening up the door to every imaginable public nuisance uh, claim. And, and this could impact manufacturing, marketing, energy, um, selling products, you name it, the gamut. And I think this was one of the big arguments that, uh, that the business community, as well as, as well as Johnson and Johnson and others had made, had made the case over and over and over again, that this was really, uh, it, I think the words once used were misguided and uh, unprecedented expansion of this public nuisance law. So there's where, it, there's where it's centered on, not the, not the issue of the op opioid uh, crisis and all the the, uh, the damage that's uh, uh, resulted uh, from from that, right. but specifically how this case uh, was presented in the trial and the fact that they they hinged it all on this 1910 public nuisance law. Oklahoma is suing President Biden to stop his administration from moving forward with a vaccine mandate. The order doesn't take effect till January 4th, but has already impacted the state's largest universities who started their own vaccine mandates because they have federal contracts. Attorney General John O'Connor has hired outside attorneys using $10 million allocated to him by the state legislature. He says the mandate is an abuse of power as the president doesn't have power over health care decisions for Oklahomans. Ryan, where does this put Oklahoma? Well, it puts Oklahoma in the company of several other states whose Republican attorney generals had announced 
well before any of these vaccine mandates had been announced, uh, let alone their effective dates, uh, but before they'd ever even been announced, that they planned to challenge whether or not the federal government, in particular the Biden administration, has the authority to impose these mandates. Yeah, I think that if you look at what the Biden administration uh, and the officials at OSHA uh, have been saying, is you know, we've been able to tell people for public health reasons for years. I mean, you gotta you gotta wear a hard hat, you gotta wear a safety vest, you gotta you know the federal government's ability to walk into uh, most and to preempt state laws and uh, in, in a lot of workspaces um, have. You know, saved you know untold number of lives and improved the working conditions of untold number of Oklahomans and Americans. Um, and so, when we are faced with one of the greatest public health emergencies uh, in the history of the globe, it, o- it only seems uh, to make sense that the authority of the federal government uh, to regulate safety and health in these uh, workplaces would extend to them being able to impose these vaccine mandates. It's important to point out that the vaccine mandates here aren't, uh, in most instances, some are, some of them they are, but aren't in most instances, uh, you know, uh, locked into being a, a vaccine mandate. They could be doing uh, testing, you know, regular testing. They could have, you know, mask wearing requirements. You know, these are all things that are proven. You know, the vaccines are best weapon against the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic will soon become an endemic uh, uh, disease that we're fighting for, who knows how long. The vaccine is our, our best tool against that. And uh, even though a lot of us are acting, and even myself, that we're on the other side of this, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's still here with us. And, uh, you know, vaccines are, are proven. I got my booster earlier this week uh, and, and encourage everybody else to do the same. I was about to get my booster, but I hadn't hydrated enough. So, uh, Nina, <laughs> what are your thoughts on this? And I got my booster this week as well. For the, so, but uh, I, I think that I think that what we see here, I mean, clearly the legislature uh, last session understood that the, these these issues were continuing to come down the pike in executive orders uh, from uh, Biden. And I think that what uh, what they did with the 10 million was make sure that the state, in their estimation, had the ability to uh, to really aggressively fight what is considered and I think considered in the polls uh, uh, would bear this out right now that people believe that this is an overreach. Um, the mandate is not authorized by any act uh, that uh, or any law that's been enacted by Congress. It, and, uh, you know, and the suit itself uh, claims that it does violate existing laws. So it's a legal, it's a legal issue. It's going to federal court. Uh, it will be aggressively pursued. And I think uh, um, we're talking now about whether or not uh, a, a president has the ability to do this and whether it will hold up in court. Uh, and that's the overarching question. And you're right, as you as you started out by saying, Michael, I mean, the fact that, you know, when you have universities, uh, the University of Oklahoma mm-hmm. receiving 400 million in, in federal contracts uh, annually, uh, Oklahoma State University receiving around 90 million, I think it is, uh, other universities across the state receiving federal dollars. I mean, the, the impact, I mean, on these uh, types of orders coming down uh, are, in, are, are incredibly impacting. And I think, I think that's uh, something we'll just have to wait and see what happens now that it's going to the court. Right. And the university have already said, OK, well, you have to be vaccinated by early December, uh, Tulsa University, OU, OSU. So they're not even waiting for this to be whether it's lawsuit. And other businesses are doing the same thing. So is the vaccine mandate, even though it's stalled, 
it's it's in lawsuit, it's in litigation, it's doing the job of getting businesses to enact their own mandates. Well, I think one of the concerns is that it opens the possibility this order for expanding the mandate to smaller employer to smaller employers and and just the ongoing uh, ripple effect of this I think is as much a concern as uh, the immediate concern just over you know what's happening with the mandate for federal contractors. So um, again, I think I think this is a much larger question and certainly one that is. Uh, I think going to take a, a while for it to be unwound and figure out uh, uh, what the resolution will be. I think one of the real dangers with with this, and I mean, I think we're already seeing it, is that the public health considerations behind you know, vaccine vaccines, uh, you know, masks, social distancing uh, in the workplace, um, regardless of whether or not you're covered by this mandate at all, is that the mandate has become shorthand for uh, a particular political. Uh, position or signaling to a particular part of the electorate, um, and you know, you know that's what you, liberals, you know, are going out of their way to wear a mask to signal to their base that hey, you know, we believe in science, uh, and I, you know, I'll take some of my, you know, my fellow liberals to task. You know, whenever we walk into a restaurant and we're wearing our mask, but then we go sit down at our table and take our mask off, it's kind of ridiculous, um, and you know, kind of undermines like this idea that oh, we're all about science. But on on the other side of it is this, you know, total denial and pushback, and you know, I. Um, I think that you know mandates have, have demonstrated that they are working, but it's something that I would encourage federal and state officials to continue to monitor because you know as you know public health considerations that should be you know driven by you know science and data uh, well, become okay. politicized. I, I worry that um, you know basic health measures uh, will take a, a backseat to political uh, posturing. And I think that's there's no debate, I think, about the political posturing aspect. I mean, it is here to stay when we talk about mandates and certainly the vaccine mandate. But one of the things that that the suit um, pointed out, uh, the lawsuit, was that, you know, the contention that this violates due process and uh, that that there uh, that individuals should enjoy the right to have, you know, have the decision, you know, about what they choose to do with their body, a, an individual decision, and that shouldn't be impacted just because they happen to be a federal contractor. So it, it will be, again, it will be a case that uh, will be heavily watched and I think have uh, certainly implications for future discussions on mandates down the road. Governor Stid is attacking Oklahoma City Public Schools for firing six teachers. The school's board voted unanimously to terminate the educators for refusing to follow the district's mandatory masking policy. Five of the six are now filing a lawsuit. The district hasn't responded. Neva, what are your thoughts on the district's move and the governor's comments here? Well, I, I, again, a messy situation. I mean, we have, uh, I think when you look at the fact that you had these these six uh, teachers file a, file a suit, uh, basically, um, uh, you know, making the case that they that they objected, that they objected based uh, on uh, personal reasons, uh, which didn't fall according to the district under the criteria that was allowed for teachers, different from what was being allowed for students. Uh, that that this started through the uh, court process. Um, it went back and forth. What finally came out was. Uh, that uh, the long and the short of it is that the teachers, it, it appears to me when you look at this from a kind of a legal back and forth, that the teachers were not part of the district's uh, bargaining uh, union. And instead they, they were in a 
other, you know, an alternate uh, group. And it appears that there could be as much uh, of the give and take based upon who the representation is and how that impacts the back and forth with the district. It would seem like uh, when we're talking so few people and the fact that this could have been resolved in some other fashion than to wind up continuing to have expensive litigation uh, going forward. I think uh, the, the board and, and parents and others are going to pause and, and really uh, begin to question uh, because when you look at the total number of folks in the in the district, I don't remember what that was, but I think it's somewhere under about 5,000 uh, employees that uh, that would be that would be in this category. It seems like that there would be a better resolution than continuing to fight it out in court. And Ryan, well, you know, I you know the governor called this uh, action by the Oklahoma City Public School uh, District illegal. Um, and, and I don't know where he gets that. I mean, I, I think that if you look at uh, the, the Senate bill uh, uh, 658 um, that was you know, meant to prohibit this kind of thing, uh, you know, Oklahoma City Public Schools uh, found a workaround whenever the mask mandate was implemented by the superintendent, not the school board. Um, and Governor Stitt, whenever that happened, didn't really seem to fight it. I mean, he was uh, kind of up in arms early on and there was kind of this confrontation of you know, is the school board uh, or the superintendent, are they committing civil disobedience by uh, and potentially exposing themselves to, to legal liability by forcing the mask mandate in the first place? Um, but then, you know, it came to light that it you know, wasn't really uh, civil disobedience. It was that we found what we believe to be a, uh, a part of the law that allows us to act without uh, being in violation of this law that was recently signed by the governor. Um, and then everybody just kind of went their own way, right? Okay, CPS got to do what they wanted to do. The governor got his talking points out about, you know, I don't like this, but, you know, uh, I don't really have to fight this in court. Um, and when these teachers were fine, I mean, they were, they were put on suspension back in August. They were fired by a unanimous vote of the school board, the local school board uh, that, that made these decisions. And I got to tell you, it, you know, service on a, on a local school board in 2021 has become uh, much more politically and, and in some instances around the nation, personally perilous. Um, you know, this, you know, these uh, school boards have really been the epicenter uh, of flashpoints uh, over, uh, you know, COVID policies and now, you know, kind of the, uh, like the, the, the latest uh, front in the culture war over, uh, you know, you know, some variants of critical race theory. Uh, so this is an instance where we had a unanimous school board uh, vote to terminate uh, six teachers. And, you know, I looked on the OKCPS website, they have over 5,000 administrators, teachers, and support personnel. Uh, and you only had six that have been fired. I mean, I, I think that that demonstrates that the overall community at OKCPS uh, among the employees there has been, you know, we're going to do this. We know that it's in the best interest of our staff. We know it's in the best interest of the students and their families. Uh, you know, my, my kids, lucky enough, uh, you know, six and 10 were able to get uh, their vaccines on Sunday. More and more kids are going to be vaccinated. Hopefully, we'll be able to move into a, a point uh, in the next uh, several months if we have good vaccine rates um, where things like masks can become a real question of whether or not we need to be wearing them in schools or not. But until we're there, uh, schools are still where the most vulnerable populations live, and they often go home to vulnerable populations, and we should be doing everything we can to protect them. Again, six teachers out of, out of 5,000. 
It will be interesting, though, these six teachers, I mean, when they amend their lawsuit or if it has been amended to wrongful termination, which was what they were talking about, um, the argument that that they made was that this was it was never about masks. It was about the rule of law. And of course, they're going to hang their head, it would appear, on uh, Senate Bill 658 and how that plays into all of this. So, uh, you know, it's going to be fascinating. Again, all of these all of these court battles that all center around uh, vaccines, masks and and the like um, will be interesting to see how we move through that, what the what the decisions are and then what the implications are for the future. I think it's also interesting, though, the fact that we are we're in we're in an at will state is so Mm -hmm. if somebody gets fired, they get fired and they don't have to have any explanation for why they get fired. The 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 lawmakers passed that, you know, 20 years ago saying if you get fired, you get fired. That's they don't have to come up with the reason for it. It doesn't preclude anyone certainly from taking action and and uh, and making the assertion it was a wrongful termination and try and trying to have their day right. in court on that. So I think that's where we're at with these folks. And I, you know, and I don't know what their their contracts look like, uh, but especially if you're a teacher that's represented by a union, you may have a contract that gives you rights over and above the the at will employment uh, rules in Oklahoma. You know, just kind of one last thing here. Um, I think that you know what we're seeing out of Governor Stitt uh, is is similar to if we look at the campaign or the elections that took place around the nation you know, last week, um, uh, and all of the actions that are taking place in school boards around the country. <clears throat> I think that we can we're seeing a preview of what uh, the some of the most contentious wedge issues that we're going to see walking into 2022, not just around the country, but right here in Oklahoma, especially when you have the top education official in the state of Oklahoma now running as a Democrat against the governor um, uh, of Oklahoma and, you know, how those ideas uh, come out in the election um, or, in, or during those campaigns. That to me is going to be really interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how, how parents uh, and, and voters respond to all of those. Speaking of elections, Oklahoma County Commissioner and former state lawmaker Kevin Calvey has his eye on another position in government. Uh, Calvi says he is running for district attorney as David Prater announced he isn't seeking re-election. No stranger to controversy, Calvi already received criticism for saying he would drop charges against police officers involved in fatal accidents. Uh, Neva, what are your thoughts on Calvi's candidacy? Well, first of all, I mean, he's the fourth Republican to jump right. in this race. So but he's primary. probably the most high profile, I think. Right uh, at, at this point, although, you know, each 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 of these folks in the race have a profile and certainly right. have, a, have, a, have their own record to run on. And I think it will be what everybody expected in an open seat for district attorney in the largest county uh, in Oklahoma, that we would have one of the most spirited uh, races that uh, that we've seen in a long time. And I think it sets up for that. I mean, certainly you're right. I mean, Kevin Calvey, Calvey has been a lightning rod, uh, you know, throughout his uh, political career. So uh, he certainly kind of decided to mix it up right from the, you know, right from the opening salvo in trying to you know, make his case on uh, that he was going to, uh, you know, drop what he called these bogus uh, criminal uh, cases <laughs> against uh, these police officers over a, a fatal incident with a 15-year-old. But I think beyond that, I think what we will see is, uh, I, I, I think we'll see Oklahoma, Oklahoma County voters really 
paying attention to the whole discussion of what they want to see in their next district attorney. And I mean, these folks come from different backgrounds. They have clearly different points of view and, and interests and issues that they're, that they're seizing on. And I think it's going to be between now and June 28th, I think it's going to be fascinating uh, to, you know, to sit back and watch how these campaigns develop and which get traction. So at this point, it's, it's uh, in my mind, it's jump ball. Anyone, uh, anyone certainly can be highly competitive and have an opportunity to win the Republican nomination. Ryan. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, Neva's right. Um, you know, the this is a wide open race at this moment. It it is quite extraordinary uh, for a candidate for a DA's race to step out and and launch their campaign by saying that <clears throat> they would drop charges uh, against uh, individuals that have pending charges against them uh, and are set to go to trial. I mean, that's you know, kind of you know, uh, you know, I, I think that. Uh, Galen Geiger, uh, the first assistant district attorney under David Prater, has said that uh, that if you want somebody to pursue justice and uh, and not use political uh, and try to use charging decisions as as, uh, as political fodder, but you know what, DAs do that all the time. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that you see folks come out you know like this and say uh, I'm you know and call a uh, you know a 15 year old kid who was shot over a dozen times by law enforcement officers while he was grabbing for his phone in his back pocket. Um, you know, that to me is a fact issue. You know, let a jury decide that. Um, let a jury decide whether or not the officers were right and, you know, putting over 13 or putting over 12 bullets in this young boy's body. Um, but to just come out and say, we're, we're going to, you know, drop these charges. I, I think that it's interesting because uh, Galen Geiger has, has largely been seen as a continuation of the David Prater administration. Um, and for those of us, including myself, who've often been critical of, of David Prater uh, and the charging decisions that he's made over his tenure uh, and his efforts to frustrate uh, real criminal justice reforms in the state of Oklahoma, um, I think that now to see Calvi come into this race and potentially move to the right of Galen Geiger, uh, it could really change the, the tone of how people are talking to the voters. No Democrats have announced yet. Uh, I've, I've heard that Vicki Bahanna, uh, who is currently at OCU's Innocence uh, Project Clinic, um, is, is considering the race. Uh, I think she would bring a very important uh, narrative uh, to the campaign. Let's just remember that the district attorney's position uh, any DA position is one of the most powerful uh, uh, individuals, elected officials in the state of Oklahoma. The Oklahoma district attorney is maybe the most powerful political official in the state of Oklahoma. Um, and you know, and the the last time that this office was um, you know, up for election four years ago, David Prater ran unopposed. Right. Uh, and so, at the very least, now voters are going to get to have a conversation with candidates. I hope that the the conversation includes more viewpoints than are currently available to them. Um, you know, I think Jackie Ford is trying to do that within the Republican primary. Uh, and, you know, that's, but I think that, well, this, this slate of candidates is far from set uh, in stone. I imagine that between now and filing, we'll see more people jump in. 
I think that I think that is likely. I, I mm-hmm. think that there's still plenty of time before uh, we see the uh, kind of the, the the door close on April 15th uh, with the uh, filing uh, that uh, that we could see others enter the race. But it is this contrast. I mean, we have Kevin Calvey, current county commissioner, someone who's been in the legislature. We have Galen Geiger, who's been uh, two decades in the uh, district attorney's office, uh, risen to uh, the, the top chair where he is now. Uh, and then we have these two defense attorneys, uh, uh, Robert Gray and Jackie Ford, as you mentioned, uh, Ryan, that uh, that are coming in, and and clearly they're they're taking they're taking a kind of a different stance in, in terms of you know bringing the the notion that there needs to be new leadership, there needs to be systemic change, and that uh, you know coming from the defense side uh, would be that would be that type of change. So it'll it'll give uh, uh, it'll give voters. Uh, some real contrast and some real uh, variety, I think, in in terms of what these candidates will uh, bring forward in their campaigns. You know, now if we can just make sure that every DA race in the state of Oklahoma has has a has a campaign and nobody's getting reelected just because they don't have an opponent. Well, I mean, again, voter, I mean, in any race, people have the opportunity to run. And when the, when a candidate's unopposed, you you can make the strong case that uh, that there was plenty of opportunity and folks were probably out there in, in some quarters looking for a candidate. But uh, people typically don't run unless they think there is, uh, you know, someone who needs to be changed out. They don't run just for the sake of running. Right. Orion and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.